If you guys have been with us the past couple weeks, we saw the first three chapters of Matthew showed us how Jesus is this Old Testament redeemer, Old Testament king that we've been hearing a lot about. Jesus is it. Right, that's kind of the whole first three chapters. Jesus is this king. Jesus is this redeemer. This is what he looks like. And last week we saw, well, if Jesus is this king and this redeemer, then what did his ministry look like? And we kind of left off with chapter 4. He said, look, he, he knew and he trusted in who God was. And in that knowing and trusting who God was, he brought life to us. But then it leads us right into chapter 5. Right into Easter Sunday where we go, okay, but what does this life with Jesus look like? Right? We, we've talked all week. We're celebrating life. We're celebrating the life we have in Jesus on Easter. What does this life look like? Another question you could say is, well, okay, if I am saved, right, because today's kind of the, the pinnacle of that, then what am I saved to? This is where Matthew goes in his gospel. So here's what we're going to see today, guys. What does this life in Jesus look like? Jesus saves us to three things. It's a life directed by the Holy Spirit, both kind of in terms of where are you going and what is getting you there, a life directed by the Holy Spirit, a life transformed by the Spirit, and a life that through the Spirit advocates works for, stands up for reconciliation for others. A life directed and transformed by the Spirit to advocate reconciliation for others to God. We're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 23. I realize I forgot the last three verses of chapter 4 last week, but they play in nicely today. And we'll go a little way into chapter 5 today. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, this being Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond to the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Father, as we are gathered here today to reflect on the life that you have given us in your Son. Lord, a life that we saw in our minds, to our eyes, taken on Good Friday. A life that we, we spent that evening grieving and mourning the loss of the things we had seen in your Son that seemingly were done, Lord, because of his death on the cross. But now getting the full picture of the story, your son is alive, Lord. Jesus is alive and he is here. And he has promised us that because of his resurrection, because he has now conquered death, Lord, we have a new life. But Father, if we are honest with you today, sometimes, maybe a lot of times, we struggle to press into this life. Lord, we don't always know what this looks like. Father, as we celebrate who you are, what you have done for us in your son and this life you have called us to, Father, may we just be humbled this morning to see how good this is. Just as we are singing, Father, you are good in all things perfect. Father, this, this is the life that you have waiting for us in Jesus. Father, may it give us a hope beyond whatever we are struggling with, a hope beyond whatever we see directly in front of us today, God, because your son has risen and this is made available to us. In your name we pray, amen. Church, if we look at the end of Matthew 4, right into the beginning of Matthew 5, we start seeing Jesus he does something all throughout Matthew that I, I really haven't, I haven't purposely introduced until this point. But it's, it's kind of small. You could almost miss it. But it teaches us something about what life with Christ looks like. And it begins by showing us he's directed by the Spirit. So if you pick up in verse 23, you see that Jesus is now starting to put this life, this ministry into action. Right? We saw in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, Matthew saying this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. Now in chapter 4, we're starting to get a picture, what does this look like? And the first thing we're told about it in verse 23 is he's teaching in their synagogues. He goes throughout Galilee and he's teaching in the synagogues, which is a really cool picture of saying Jesus is not yet at the point where he's telling people, leave where you're at and come be with me. He does for a couple of people. But Jesus is setting this example. He is going to be with the people where they are at. He's meeting them in their place, teaching in their synagogues. And what's he doing there? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? So he's going to where they are, and he's sharing the good news of who he is, who God is, with those around him. And then, then we see he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people, right? That literally... He's bringing life wherever he goes. So this is kind of a picture of what we were talking about last week. Wherever the people are, Jesus is going to meet with them. Jesus is sharing with them who God is, and Jesus is literally bringing life. And verse 24 tells us uh, people are paying attention, and uh, they're coming to him. They're fairly impressed, to safe to say, if they're being healed, and they're being delivered from you know, all of it, uh, being oppressed by demons, various diseases and pains. Great crowds are following him. And what happens next in chapter 5, verse 1 is key. Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up on the mountain. He takes a moment and he steps 
away from the crowds. So much so that the disciples go, um, uh, maybe we need to go follow him. Because in, in their minds, something's missing, right? If, if you're doing, picture, just picture what Jesus is doing in this moment, right? He's healing. He's teaching. He's sharing the gospel. Everybody's getting stirred up. Everybody's getting excited. You're thinking, okay, Jesus, like, you got these people here. They are seeing who you are. What are you going to do next, Jesus? And Jesus leaves. And in my mind, I'm going, that's not the way to build momentum, Jesus. Like, you've got everybody right there hanging on. What are you about to say? And he withdraws to the mountain. Why, Jesus? Why, why did you leave that moment? And I was thinking about it this week, church. We've actually seen Jesus has withdrawn a couple different times. And the first one we see actually comes in the beginning of chapter 4, where he's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the last time we saw Jesus withdrawing, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't like he was unsure of what to do next. He withdraws to go be with the Holy Spirit, showing us that it's a primary work, an important work, an utmost important work to live directed by the Spirit. Matthew has shown throughout his gospel before Jesus ever steps foot into ministering to others, he steps back to be with the Spirit. It's, it's a little different maybe than perhaps what we would see, but it's so much so important to Jesus that as Matthew is kind of cluing us in here at the beginning, this picture is only going to get bigger and bigger, louder and louder as we move throughout Matthew's gospel. Right In chapter 3 and chapter 4, we've seen Jesus withdraw so that the Spirit can lead him. Jesus showing people around him saying, look, I'm not even going to begin to minister until the Spirit, that you guys know, the Spirit is in me. Matthew 9, Jesus tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. All right, Jesus What's our strategy here, right? We got, we got a big harvest. We got a few laborers. What do we do, Jesus? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That first work there mentioned, church, pray. The work of being directed by the Spirit. After the Great Commission, this is one of my favorite Places in scripture after the great commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus tells his disciples go baptize teach take the gospel to all the nations Jesus is recorded in by Luke's second volume in Acts verses 4 through 8 telling them but don't go yet because you are missing the thing that enables you to actually go and live the great commission Jesus says wait until the spirit has come upon you before you leave Jerusalem. He shows you we are powerless, church, to live the life of Christ, to live the life of God if we do not have the Holy Spirit. I was thinking this week, just as I have gotten to know you guys over the past 18 months, there's a, a common theme that I would say I've heard in many of your stories. Um, it's, it's humbling to me. It's a little different. It's kind of cool, though, that this is the, ah, 
The way I've described this to my friends, honestly, is that you guys are a church that has a good gut about you. Not that I mean that you can stomach anything, um, although we do eat pretty well. But you guys have demonstrated this, this uncanny ability to recognize when something's not right and just something moves in you. Like, there's, that, there's that gut tugging that says something is not quite right there and I feel it. And I want to go be there. I, I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to show up because I'm, just, I'm drawn to this. The, the number of stories I've heard of you guys who have either you know, worked in healthcare or retired in healthcare or have had nothing to do with healthcare but just look for ways to love and serve and connect with one another, it's, it is humbling as a pastor to get to watch this daily in you. And I was, I was realizing this week as we're talking about a life directed by the Holy Spirit, that gut tug is a good thing, church. That, that, that tug in your gut that says there's something not right there. I, I don't know what I can do, but I need to go there and be a part of whatever that is. That is that work of the Spirit. That little tug is the Spirit saying, Let, let's go work here. But church, as I want to encourage you as your pastor, it is humbling to me to see that Jesus, before he goes with his gut, he takes a step back and says, okay, Spirit, what are we doing here? Right? I, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm feeling where I see, I know you're going to be at work. What do you want me to do? Right? It's just a moment of pause before he moves. And I love that Jesus, he goes up onto the mountain first. A life directed by the Spirit. But by no means is this the end of what happens. Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain forever. What Jesus does next then, as he's being directed by the Spirit, this is where we come to a passage many of you may be familiar with, the Beatitudes. And I wanted to do something a little different this morning. Uh, if, if you're like me, when you've heard messages on the Beatitudes or if you've done studies on the Beatitudes, we tend to focus on like the actual attitude, right? Like what does it mean to be poor in spirit or to be meek? Uh, that, that's a word we don't even use much in English today, so it's good that we would study it. What does it mean to be pure in heart, merciful, all these things? Instead of focusing on the attributes this morning, church, I want us to pay attention. There's a big picture. Something is taking place. As Jesus walks us through, what does this blessed life look like? And it starts with being directed by the Spirit, but it's also a life transformed by the Spirit. Okay? Notice the two things that are consistent in all the Beatitudes. Right? First is the word blessed. We see that a bunch. Uh, it's the most times I have said the word blessed today or any time recently. Jesus says blessed are blank. Blessed are blank over and over and over again in this passage. That word blessed comes from the Greek word that actually just means happy. Happy with the context of transformation. It's a very unique word. Blessed's pretty good, but it's not a word that we in English really get the full picture of. What Matthew is doing in showing Jesus saying blessed is he's contrasting it to what we see in the Old Testament. If you think about, because we read through Exodus, right? Most of you guys were here when we went through Exodus. So we, we've kind of seen what the law does. In Exodus, there's a lot of 
this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way to do it, and if you do the wrong thing, then this is the consequence for it. This is the picture that the Old Testament law used to show us who God was. This is what's right, this is what's wrong. Here's the penalty for if it's wrong. Jesus does something a little bit different. Jesus shows up and says, instead of let me focusing you on what is the wrong thing to do here, let me show you what's blessed. Let me, you could almost say Jesus is, is putting this to them saying, let me show you a better way, right? Let me show you a better pursuit. Let me show you a better thing to chase after. Let me show you a better life. Right, when we get overwhelmed by the things that are in front of us, isn't it, how freeing is it to have someone show up and say, look, I know that you're wrestling with this, but there is something better we can do. Because often when we're in the middle of the moment, we don't see anything better. And it takes someone stepping in to where we are saying, I see where you are at. Let me show you something better. So this is where Jesus starts. And what's this better thing? Well, it, it shows up in the different people that Jesus addresses. He starts by talking to the poor in spirit, verse 3, those who mourn, verse 4, the meek, verse 5. And he kind of sums them up together in verse 6. He said, these are all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Really, Jesus is speaking to a group saying, you guys are the ones who if the pastor or if someone is talking about brokenness, like you know, you know what he's talking about. We're not talking about sin or things that are wicked as if it's just some sort of like, ah, well, you know, that, that sounds like, like when we talk about brokenness, Jesus is saying there are those of you who know exactly what we're talking about, who can feel, who can look at what we see take place in the world, sometimes what we see take place in our own lives, and we just know something is not quite right. Jesus sums that group up and says, that group is those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They see something's not right, but man, we want it to be made right. And Jesus is offering them, blessed, hey, blessed are you? You know that something's not quite right. Now, let's work with that. Let me show you a better way. And Jesus in verse 6 says, that group, they shall be satisfied. That Greek word there is a very, it's a play on words that Jesus is using because it means to be filled. Now, church, think back to last week and the week before. What have we seen Jesus being filled with? the Spirit. So Jesus is saying, you know what this better way looks like? It is a filled life. And Jesus says, and you know, what did you see filled in me? But the Spirit of God. Jesus now says, look, this is not only a life directed by the Spirit I have for you, but a life that shall be filled, that shall be changed, that shall be transformed in the Spirit. Because after verse 6, where we shall be satisfied, where we're filled with the Spirit. Now the groups of people are different in the second half. Now Jesus is not talking to people who feel the brokenness and are thirsting to be made right. Now Jesus is talking to people who, with the Spirit, they are right. They are right. Now, verse 7, now we're merciful. 
Now we're pure in heart. Now we are peacemakers. Now we're even being persecuted for righteousness sake. Which at our community group on Tuesday we were saying, that's not part of the message of Jesus that we typically present to people. Oh, and by the way, this persecution for righteousness snake is kind of baked into the life of Christ. So uh, it's, it's interesting that Jesus right up front with his own disciples says, this is, this is part of the picture. Before verse 6, Jesus shows up to say, those of you who feel you know something's not right, there is a better way. Now Jesus says, once you're filled with the Spirit and you're living in the Spirit, you still will struggle. You still will face hard moments. You still, verse six, you, or verse 10, you still will be persecuted for righteousness sake, but there is still a better way in the Spirit. Verse 7 tells us, even in our struggle to be merciful, the Spirit will give us mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. In our struggle for purity, we will see God, right? The Spirit will continue to show us who God is. The Spirit will lead us to make peace. As we struggle to make peace with others, the Spirit will make peace with us, between us and God. And out of that peace, we get to bring peace to others. I mean, it's, it's this picture Jesus is saying of as I'm directed by the Spirit, I will fill you with the Spirit. And once the Holy Spirit is in you, he will continue to work, to strengthen, to encourage, to lead us into the image of God. What a, what a wonderful thing. I mean, just thinking about the disciples they're showing up to Jesus saying, Jesus, um, have you forgotten about everybody down here? You know, they liked the works. They liked the teaching. Like, what are you going to do, Jesus? And Jesus, the first thing he tells his disciples is saying, let me show you a better way. Because once you get this better way, we're going to go back down that mountain. And there's a whole group of people that need this too. That need the spirit. And this is kind of where Jesus' mindset then takes them throughout the rest of what we, we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 5 and 7. We start seeing when we're directed and we're transformed by the spirit. Then what do we do? Verses 12 through 16 give us this picture of being advocates for reconciliation to God. Right, the spirit... The Spirit's life, verse 12, it leads us to rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Jesus is talking to people who feel the brokenness. Jesus is talking to people who he knows that as they follow him, they're going to be beaten. They will be whipped. They will be mocked. They will be scorned. They will be, as he says, persecuted for righteousness' sake. He knows what they're going through. And yet, he still tells them in verse 12, because you are blessed, because this is the better way, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That there is something there to that life, that hope, that is better, that just is greater than what we have on earth. It's greater. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Essentially, he's saying we don't even understand 
how much greater life is with Christ than life without. What a reward, church, that is stored up for us. And so with this joy, knowing this is the reward that comes, what do we do? Two pictures Jesus gives us in 13 through 16. He tells us that we become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I love verse 13, verse 14. He starts with saying, you are. This is not an optional thing. This is not something that only some people receive, right, when they come to know Jesus. It's not like some of us become salt, some of us become light, and the rest of us are just waiting for heaven to come. He says, you are. This is who you are being transformed into. This is who you are being directed to be. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And and I'll be honest too, church, because in my head, when I was reading the scripture this week, I missed the word of in this passage. In fact, when, when I was talking to somebody about it, I used the word too. And I was like, oh man, why do I remember the scripture with the word to? You are the salt to the earth. You are the salt or the light to the world. And in the Greek there, there isn't really any word in there. The literal translation says you are the salt, the earth. You are the light, the world. So you could read that as you are the earth's salt. You are the world's light. It's, it's a little bit of a posture difference, right? If we think of ourselves as the salt to the earth, the light to the world, that almost gives us kind of a us versus them mentality when it comes to how spirit-filled Christians interact with the world, right? Like if we are the salt and we are the light, then we show up and we say, this is what needs to change. This is how we can work. But if we are the earth's salt, the world's light, then we aren't against creation so much as we are now advocates for it. Let me explain this. Jesus tells us this is how the Holy Spirit is for us. In John chapter 14, verse 26, we're told that the Holy Spirit is our, in the Greek, paraclete, directly means our advocate. You could almost think of it in a legal sense as our defense attorney. And the Spirit, as this advocate, does not stand before God to say, God, look at everything that's wrong here. In fact, let me me make it so clear. God, this is how bad these things are so you can carry out your judgment here. Joel, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be a terrible defense attorney if you were to stand before the judge and say, look, we both know my client's guilty. Let me remind you of the law and exactly what the punishment looks like for my client because I know he's guilty. That... You would not last long as a defense attorney if word got around that that's how you were before the judge. The advocate in the spirit is different. The spirit is our advocate, stands before God and says, look, I know that you probably see the same brokenness that I do, but look at what Christ has done there. Look at how his death has already satisfied this judgment. Look at how it has already fulfilled your wrath. God, let's work to reconcile this one, church. This is what Jesus does for you and I. Jesus' death stands in our place to say, God, 
You are righteous in your anger. You are righteous in your judgment. But you have already poured that out on Jesus. And because of this, church, now the Spirit says, let's work to change this one. Let's work to make this one more like us. Let's bring this one back to be an imitator of your son. The easiest way I was thinking about this week, an easy way to remember, the Spirit is our paraclete. I told John, not our parakeet, right? Just as a, that is my one in a lifetime for you right there. I don't, I do not often get those, but rather than saying, rock, that's where that one's wrong. Rather than being the parakeet, the spirit is our paraclete that says, no, God, your son has covered this one. Let's work to make this So in the spirit, church, we are seeing a life directed and transformed. Jesus shows up to the world to say, look, (laughs) you you need me, right? Like like this this whole posture before God of of righteousness, of, of a sacrifice that's already been paid for, this is not possible if it doesn't come through Jesus. So Jesus shows up to the world to give himself for the world so that we have this possible. Church, you and I, in this life we have, like, be encouraged for us. Man, if Jesus stands in our place today, then this whole reconciliation work is taking place. We can press into that. We can ask the Spirit to change us, to heal us, to fix what we see wrong. But church, for others, this also becomes our calling card and our mission to say, look, if this is what Jesus has done in my life, And this is the way that the Spirit is working for me, between me and God. Man, I want others to have that. Man, I want others to have this same life. We work to bring Christ's life to the lost, to the hurting, to the grieving, to the abused, to the neglected, to the overlooked. We advocate for reconciliation. And I realized this morning, man, this this is something that Jesus went back to at the end. What looked like the end. This is what Jesus was impressing on his disciples as he's being led towards, towards the cross. Matthew 26 shows us when he's praying in the garden. Like he knows what's about to happen. He knows the end result of his life, directed, transformed by the Spirit, advocating righteousness. Jesus knows the end result of this is going to be death on the cross. So Jesus in the garden, when he is praying so fervently, he is sweating drops of blood, church. He knows, look, this is not an easy calling. This is not a comfortable calling. But he presses into prayer, saying in verse, 21, or verse 41 of chapter 26, he tells his disciples, look, the spirit indeed is willing, right? We feel how difficult this is, but the spirit of God will lead us to do this well. It says the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows that there will come many moments. Some of you guys felt them already this morning, moments where you say, but I really don't feel like this life is worth it. The Spirit is willing to direct, to transform, to lead you in this life. 
Matthew 27 reveals that as Jesus is being beaten and whipped, scorned, sentenced to death, advocating still even to the final moment, those words Matthew or Luke records in chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In thinking about the whole defense attorney posture, Jesus is saying this while he's on the cross. That would almost be like if we are killing our defense attorney in court in front of the judge and the defense attorney is still saying, I know this looks bad, but forgive them still. I mean, what, what an attitude of Christ being crucified saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In fact, it is in Christ's faithfulness to be directed and transformed by the Spirit, as he is this advocate for us, church, he actually fulfills this wonderful prophecy which we usually quote and we read different pieces of around this time. I'm going to give you the full thing, Isaiah 53. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking about Jesus, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah tells us this Messiah this conquering king, this redeemer, this one who defeats brokenness is not going to look extremely appealing. The life of being persecuted for righteousness sake, not one we often want to undertake. In fact, verse 4 of Isaiah 53 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In fact, when we look at Jesus and we see his wounds, we say, Wow, look what God put him through for us. And Isaiah tells us, No, 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 look at what you have done. Look at what our sin has done. Look at our brokenness. This is not God just beating himself for us. Look at what we rightfully deserve. Look at what we have put on Christ. And yet, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. It is by his wounds we are healed. Not because God is just choosing to do this, but because we have done this to him. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on Christ, on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Church, I one of my biggest pet peeves is when... I'm misunderstood. I don't like being labeled as that guy. Uh, some, Abigail has told me it's, it's really, it's the vanity of no vanity. I take pride in not being that guy. Take pride in not having to be like the one that's known for something over there. 
But what that does in me is, is when I'm misunderstood, I have a really hard time not standing up and saying, no, nah, this is why you don't understand who I am, right? This, this is why you should treat me differently or, or you know, what, whatever it is. And it is fascinating to me that Jesus, as he is bearing our iniquity, as he is bearing our sin that we have, we have chosen, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That this is, this is part, in part, a picture of what this directed, transformed advocate of reconciliation life looks like. Verse 8 tells us it's by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, he didn't deserve this. There was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And the glorious promise of this church, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, that when Christ overcomes the grave and God gives him new life, Christ takes that life and pours it out. The spoil with the strong. Some of your translations may say with the great, with the crowds. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says, look, this is not often a pretty life. But this life directed by the Spirit, this life transformed by the Spirit, this life that bears the punishment even of death so that others may be made right with God, this life is what the Messiah has to offer. And Jesus and Matthew and all these New Testament authors that point back to this, all these Old Testament prophecies that point forward to this say, this is worth it. This is worth it. So church, as we close this morning, I want to give each of us a chance to respond. We'll do something a little bit different. I know normally I give you the prompts and then I pray and we sing. I'm going to let you guys each have a moment for the spirit to move in you to show you where do I need to respond to this. Because in each one of these, there's, there's a different way for us to respond. Along the lines of directed. Look, maybe you struggle with feeling directed by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you struggle with saying, man, I, I don't feel like I've ever heard the Spirit tell me to do something. I, I feel like I've never felt that gut tugging that you were talking about earlier, Jordan. I don't, I don't know what that looks like. Church, Jesus shows us 
that before he ever goes, he makes sure he is in line with the Spirit. And so maybe for some of you today, you need to say, okay, God, look, I'm here. I've taken a moment out of my week with all the distractions and all the busyness that's going on. God, I'm here. I want to hear from your Spirit. Maybe that's your response today. Maybe you struggle with the transform piece, right? We're saved, but we are still facing suffering. We're still facing the effects of brokenness, of sin in the world. And so maybe you're really struggling to say, like, God, are you, are you trying to show me something? Am I doing something wrong that's bringing this upon me? Am I just watching brokenness happen because it's there? Like, what, God, are you doing? What is of you and what is not? Maybe today that's where we need to call out to the Spirit. Right, that Jesus says whether we are feeling the brokenness or whether we are filled with the Spirit and still struggling, the Spirit is there. The Spirit is at work changing us. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. Maybe it's the advocating. right? Maybe you say, okay, Jordan, I feel like I've been tugged by the Spirit. I feel like I've got those moments where, okay, I should probably do something here, but I have no clue what that looks like. For some of you, you're like, no, I know exactly what that looks like. I'm getting tired of how much I'm answering the call, Lord. Sometimes you may be feeling this morning like, God, I understand what advocating for righteousness looks like, but I am wearing out. And so today, this morning, church, be encouraged. Jesus says, look, you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your taste, salt. You are the light of the world. Don't hide your light. The Spirit will encourage, will fill will give you endurance. Maybe you need to press in and pray for that today. But lastly, and I do want to be clear with this, this direction, this transformation, this work of the Spirit is only possible through Christ. And there may be some today where this life is foreign. Because you say, well, I've never really understood what it means that Jesus is this King that Jesus is this Redeemer. Maybe I have not said, I trust you, Jesus. You are that King. You are that Redeemer. What, what you may have heard people in church say, that you are our Lord and Savior. Church, before we even have this life possible, we have to receive it first. And so for some of you today, maybe that is the prayer, to receive this life from God through Christ now. And then we can press into the Spirit. So I'm going to give us each a moment to pray. However you need to respond. We'll put a little bit of music in the background. Just helping us eliminate distractions. I'll close in prayer and then we'll close with one final song. Father, be with your people right now. As we have heard your word, as we have seen the work of your Spirit. Father, we want to take just, just even a second to say, where are you, God, at work? Father, may you come, may you answer each where they're at, and may you stir in our hearts this morning as we give you a moment to pray.